Life After Stroke is a production of the Hang On to the Dream Foundation, the 501c3 nonprofit organization that helps kids and adults reach their goals in life. If these Life After Stroke programs are helpful to you, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to the Hang On to the Dream Foundation to assist the organization in its numerous outreach activities. For more information, just go to www.hangontothedream.org. And remember, no matter how hard things seem, hang on to the dream. The following is a recorded program of an actual stroke support group. The comments expressed are the personal opinions of the participants and not necessarily the opinions of the producers, sponsors, or the broadcasters of this show. This program is not to be used as a way to diagnose or treat any medical condition that you may have. Please consult your doctor or healthcare professional before making any changes to your current medical routine. Stroke. 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 It comes out of the blue, sometimes without warning. But those who survive it should never lose hope. A stroke can be life-changing. But it is also a new beginning. Because for all survivors, there is still a beautiful life after stroke. Hey everybody, welcome to Life After Stroke. I'm Christopher Ewing. Today we're broadcasting from our studios here in Hollywood, as well as various parts all across the country. And, um, you know, I know it's been a while since we've done an episode of the show. We've kind of just been falling into the whole COVID routine as everybody else. Um, just kind of hunkered down and just trying to stay one step ahead of old Rona. Um, but we have been meeting uh, online. So for those of you who are stroke survivors, uh, you are more than welcome to be a part of our stroke support group that we hold online every Thursday at 11 a.m. Uh, if you go to the strokechannel.tv and uh, you'll go there and be able to find out how to get tuned in. Um, but something else that uh, I started uh, probably about six months ago, or I, I maybe getting pretty close to that, um, you know, I've always kind of had this idea of wanting to do um, a show or, or, or a support group for caregivers. Um, you know, I'm just a little over two and a half years into this whole stroke thing myself and really began to realize just what a major, major role caregivers play in us stroke survivors getting our lives back together. And I just thought, boy, you know, there's so many caregivers out there that I bet they'd love to have their own little powwow and, you know, time to kind of piss, moan and complain like all of us stroke survivors do in the midst of our stroke. And so kind of one conversation led to another. And one of the gentlemen who participates in our Thursday stroke survivor group, uh, his wife would kind of in the background on Zoom kind of help him get his computer logged in and everything else. And one conversation led to another. And I said, boy, you know, Dr. Peter, do you think your wife Anne would, uh, you know, want to run our caregiver support group? And then Anne and I talked about it. And so here we are. And so um, every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific time, we have our caregiver stroke support group. And it is headed up by Ann Parker, who is with us right now, as well as some of the other participants who participate in the caregiver stroke support group. But first, I want to say hello to Ann. And uh, hello and say hi to everybody who's listening. Hello to all you people listening out there. You're not alone. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, and I, you know, and I've said this to Anne countless times, so it's nothing new that she's going to hear. I just, just so appreciate her and everything that she brings to the caregiver stroke support group. You know, I kind of participate in it just as a fly on the wall as kind of the, the stroke survivor representative, but uh, Anne really just does such an 
awesome job with everybody uh, who's part of the group. And, you know, I just, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I said, boy, you, you know, you, we had just a great meeting the other day. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this would have been a great episode of the show because everybody just brings just so much great information as a caregiver that I knew there's other caregivers out there that listen to our show who would really love some of this great information. So what I thought we would do, everybody, is kind of go around the horn. And throughout this episode, we're going to talk to a number of stroke survivors, caregivers, and they're going to talk about just some of the experiences that they've kind of found themselves in as being a caregiver and some of the the things that they've had to do as an advocate for their loved one. Um, And so, Anne, why don't we start with you and then we'll kind of go around the horn um, and maybe introduce yourself, tell everyone a little bit about how you became a caregiver and a little bit about Dr. Peter, my buddy, and all that kind of good stuff. Thanks, Chris. Um, And for those of you listening, Christopher is a team member with us on this caregiver support group. Uh, He brings a lot to the group. So just a shout out back to you, Chris. Look, I find people that can can do the job. You know, I'm just the boss sitting next to uh, the person who just does just a great job, but thank you. So he's being humble. We appreciate that. Okay. Um, I'm a caregiver for my husband, Peter, who had a stroke about 18 months ago. He had a hemorrhagic stroke. Um, It didn't, he was not physically impaired at all. So it was a very strange thing as it happened. I wasn't really sure he was having a stroke because he didn't have any of the telltale signs of a stroke, except for being extremely confused. Um, did bring him to the hospital and they ran the tests and yes, he had a hemorrhagic stroke. So we've been in this about 18 months, uh, feeling our way the whole time. I often felt like I was reinventing the wheel. I knew I wasn't the only person out there dealing with stroke. Um, And there seemed to be a lot of support groups for the stroke survivors, but for the caregivers under more constraints of time, energy, everything else, there didn't seem to be a whole lot for us. And so this has been really a, a great benefit, learning lots all the time. And as you are introduced to everybody else, you'll see the same. So I had done caregiving for my uh, mother who had dementia, which was a good lead in to this. Um, there are some similarities as it goes on. But I'll just pass the microphone next to the next person who can introduce themselves. Yeah, you know, and one thing I wanted to mention before we do that, you know, it's interesting, Anne, because if I remember correctly, Dr. Peter had a um, hemorrhagic stroke, but it was also kind of brought on by an AVM, an arteriovenous malformation. So you can kind of, right. you know, for those of you that are listening, you can kind of speak from kind of both sides of that coin because... You know, I had a hemorrhagic stroke, but mine was not brought on by an AVM. Right. Some people have AVMs that aren't hemorrhagic strokes. And as we all have probably yeah. heard or we know now, you know, hemorrhagic strokes are the most um, the most deadly, unfortunately. And a lot of people don't survive right. them. So, And AVMs are rather rare, as yes. we've come to find out. Mm-hmm. And the treatment is rather uh, lacking, let's yes. put it that way. Sure. So it's, it's a hard thing to treat, a hard condition to treat. Um, and it has a lot of possibility for re-rupture, but you know, that's another whole. Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole other, whole other show. And it really is (laughs) because, you know, one of the things about AVM, just to kind of put a little bow on it and, and wrap up that particular topic is the fact that, um, you know, if you have high blood pressure, you know, you're going to be more likely to have some type of a stroke, you know, if, if your blood pressure is super high. That's just kind of what they say. Um, so, you know, t- kind of how to not really prevent it, but in essence, you can. But with an AVM, you're born like that. 
you know, and if your blood pressure is fine and you, you know, you don't smoke, don't drink, you know, you look both ways for you cross the street and, you know, pet puppies and all that, you know, you could live just the best life. And boom, that AVM just kicks in and, you know, you don't really go to get a checkup for an AVM. I mean, you'd have to go in and have a, you know, a CAT scan and an MRI. So there's really not a way to kind of check and make sure if you're okay. It's in there. And some people live and die with it. Never acts up. Some people, it just crops up. And so, you know, so that's really interesting, Anne. And for those of you who are interested in participating in our caregiver support groups, uh, you know, that we have on Wednesdays, if you care for someone who's had an AVM, you know, maybe you can be a part of our group uh, going forward and you can ask Anne some of the questions uh, personally through our stroke support group uh, for caregivers. So that's awesome. Um, thanks, Anne. Um, we're going to continue to around the table. Uh, let's go over to Miss Tiffany. Tiffany, uh, introduce yourself to everybody who's listening and kind of talk a little bit about uh, your loved one who you are a caregiver for. Yes. Um, uh, hi, everyone. My name is Tiffany and um, I am a caregiver for my husband, who had a, a same kind of stroke that um, Anne mentioned about um, the hemorrhage stroke, and um, it's happened when we when we were on a plane midair um, for coming home from uh, Florida. So for like two and a half or almost three hour on a plane, that he was pretty much kind of like um, having stroke, but there was nothing we could do about it. Um, we end up. Um, reaching um, UCLA Stroke Center afterward. And now he's like paralyzed on the right side. Um, and everything changed since then uh, for the worse. Um, his personality changed. Um, I'm pretty new to all this. Um, still today, after 17 months, you know, something is still new, um, changing every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, challenging, but we cope with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, and Tiffany, I can only imagine what it would be like to be thirty five thousand feet in the air and have your husband. Uh, I mean, were there signs before he got on the plane? Was it? I mean, I can't. I mean, talk about being helpless. It just you're in midair for goodness sakes. Yeah, well, he had um, uh, a mini stroke like a year before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and prior to that, um, he also had like heart heart condition and um, also bypass, like five bypass um, heart surgery. So pretty much he always had high blood pressure, high cholesterol. Mm-hmm. Um, on the day that we, uh, you know, coming home, uh, I could see that he was, very very slow hmm. in responding uh even walking but i thought it was one of you know um normal um thing that when he travel he's not you know mm-hmm. as himself so it, i thought it was just one of the anxiety and maybe the medication that he took in the morning it's kind of have some kind of effect on him um, he got in, he was very slow um, in responding um, in the airport when, you know, they asked him for a driver license. So I noticed that. So I was helping him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, you know, so he, um, he kept like acting similar to that kind of situation whenever we travel anyway. Mm-hmm. But now looking back, it was much slower than before. So, um, uh, but then, you know, he was able to get into the, you know, the seat and mm-hmm. was able to take a nap. 
Um, and then, if I remember correctly, I remember you mentioning how you guys weren't sitting next to each other. I think you were a seat apart or something like that, and you looked over towards him and you noticed something wasn't right? Or Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Um, so, um, luckily, I think it's um, about two hours into the flight, um, they're starting to serve uh, beverage. And so I noticing that the um, flight attendant was trying to talk to my husband, but it took a long time because I know that he tried, he liked, he always liked Coke. And so it should be, you know, simple, but it took a long time for the flight int- attendant to kind of like, you know, recognizing what he was saying. So I'm trying, I'm starting to like, trying to help uh, by reaching over and at that time, he was already trying to um, hold a can of Coke, but he couldn't. Mm. So he looked over to me, but because of the noise in the airplane and everything, he tried to say something to me. I couldn't understand and I couldn't hear anything. I kept saying, what, what, what? You know, and um, uh, by the time I turned to his face and look at his face, I could see the half of his face already droop. Mm. And he kept pointing, I think, uh, using his left, left hand side, pointing to the right hand that he couldn't hold a, a, mm. the, the cup. So, um, and then he pointed down to like his leg. At that time, I couldn't understand what was going on. He's trying to say something I couldn't understand. So he then, um, I then look at his face and it, that is like the, um, this kind of like the, a sign given mm-hmm. away that um, I was thinking in my head, well, he, he probably have a stroke. So then I was starting to like, you know, get the attention from flight attendant. I told him, I think my husband probably having a stroke. Mm. Um, so I asked if he could help to find out if there's a doctor on the airplane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, luckily there was one. Mm-hmm. And you were and you were flying from where to back to California? Where were you flying uh, from? Florida. From Florida. Florida. And how close back to home were you? Just like a couple hours out, two or three hours out still? Yes, about almost three hours out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then when you mentioned it to the flight attendant and they found a doctor on the plane and all that, did they offer to put the plane down someplace and take him off or how how did that continue to unfold yeah so <clears throat> as was notified to the captain and um, they offer me to if we would like to you know um land. turn around and, oh. and land somewhere mm-hmm. um luckily when they was asking announcing on the airplane to see if any physician on board and there was a physician seems to see work for kaiser and see from um like Orange County of mm-hmm. Kaiser. Um, so he, he came up and kind of like trying to take the vital sign and everything and she's um, saying that, yeah, he uh, he having a stroke. The problem is at that time because we nobody could tell if what kind of stroke that he has. Mm-hmm. So if there's a blockage, then um, you need to, you know, take action right away. Mm-hmm. But there's a hamburger step. Basically, if you get into the hospital, there's nothing else, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. even at the hospital they could do. Um, but wait anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but wait anyway. Mm-hmm. So it was like um, uh, a very tough decision for me to mm-hmm. make. 
because he she was saying that if we turn around and land somewhere, uh, chances are he he won't be able to see a physician for at least two hours mm. or three. Mm-hmm. It's just almost the same time that we would like go straight, mm-hmm. you know, to LAX and go to UCLA. Especially at UCLA, they have the best stroke center mm-hmm. in the age. And um, so during that time, my husband was still um, awake. And so many times he tried to communicate, but nobody could understand what he was saying. Mm. And at that time, we offered a pen and you know pencil for him to write on. He couldn't because he's right-handed, but it's impacting his right hand. Mm. And so we, during two and a half hours, we didn't know what exactly in his mind. The only kind of, you know, helpful thing was that he wasn't passed out anything. Um, he was able to kind of give a signal. So um, finally, um, um, he was able to let us know that he wanted to go home, go home to mm-hmm. you know, UCLA. Um, he doesn't want to turn around and, you know, so that's what I, we did. But it was very, very tough three-hour flight for me Absolutely. because I feel so helpless, Absolutely. Uh, hopeless. And, you know, I was thinking, oh, God, if something happened to him on a plane, that would be my fault. You, you know, know, look, everybody that listens to this show, you've heard me give my disclaimer so i'm not going to give it again this group knows my disclaimer <laughs> i'm looking at ann on zoom she already knows what i'm about to say everybody that listens to this show with any kind of regularity you know i'm a crier so i'm just letting you know at some point during this show i'm sure i'm gonna cry i'm already crying now you just don't know it and i'm trying to fight through it the reason i say that is because tiffany you know first of all you know everybody on zoom we see tiffany's got this great smile we just love tiffany we love us some tiffany tiffany it breaks my heart to think that you, you know, it's, it's tough enough to have your loved one have a stroke and it's tough enough to be there witnessing it. I cannot imagine a more terrible place to be than to be in midair, 35,000 feet in the air, hundreds of people on the plane. And you've, you've got this pressure of like, okay, my husband's having a stroke. I don't want to inconvenience anybody, but my husband's having a stroke. Okay. (laughs) And you know, look, you know, how do I make this decision? If I make the wrong decision, is it going to be worse or better? You know, Tiffany, oh, Tiffany, my heart goes out to you, sweetie. My, I just, I can't even imagine. But, you know, and we've talked about this before, that the decision that was made was the right one in the grand scheme of things because he was having a hemorrhagic stroke. You know, again, if he was having an ischemic stroke and everybody waited, well, then, yeah, time is brain, as they say in the stroke world. Um, but in this case... It really wasn't going to make much of a difference anyway, as you have said and have since found out that because of the the speed of the plane and the time it would take to get to LAX versus turn around and go to some regional hospital and then have to get him out of there to someplace else, you know, because you have to go to a stroke comprehensive stroke unit, you know, to get uh, the right kind of stroke care. So, um, you know, it worked out. But really, you know, this is, again, everybody, you know, why I wanted to do this show, because as a stroke survivor, stroke is a mess. I mean, I, I would use the B word, but I mean, it is terrible enough. I can't imagine for a loved one to be handed this, this decision 
you know, here, let me let me dump this in your lap. Okay, your loved one's having a stroke, you're 35,000 feet in the air. Now decide which how you want to play this. You know, it's like, gee whiz. So uh, yeah, yeah. Were you gonna say something in? I was just going to punch in and not to go into any depth, but this is the decision process is one of the biggest changes with having a, with your partner having a stroke. Mm -hmm. As Tiffany said, she's on the plane thinking, what do I do? What do I do? Well, normally this would be something you'd be talking to your partner about. And it was almost a, a foreshadowing because I think all of us have felt that we're the, we're on the hot seat yes. all the time for the most part. And it's a burden what, that you're not really prepared to take, no matter what you think you are prepared to take. It's a shock sure. that suddenly it's your game. Sure. And and to have such limited options at that moment in Tiffany's case, I mean, you can't just dial 911 and tell the ambulance to get over here and hurry. I'll meet you at the front door. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Plus, I think it's the guilt that you carry, too, mm-hmm. of, um, you know, woulda, shoulda, coulda. Mm-hmm. If I just hadn't done this, if I had done that, if I had just been there at that moment, why didn't I see it? Why didn't I vision this? Why didn't I prepare better? You know, that sense of guilt is, is something you just carry around. And you know what? I, I yeah, First of all, that's Karen, and we're going to come to Karen next uh, on that topic, because I know uh, Jonathan, who's another one of our uh, caregivers who's on the, the group with us today, um, you know, as many of you know, you know, I lead a stroke survivor uh, support group on Thursdays. And Karen, I have heard that come up several times from caregivers who say, you know, oh, man, if I had just done this, if I had just done that. Um, you've heard me talk about this. Uh, for those of you who listen to the show on our uh, stroke survivor show, um, where uh, Cassie's husband, who uh, he was uh, the trumpet player on the Tonight Show for like five years and all that. Well, he uh, had gone to work and Cassie was at home. And she had her stroke and he came home and found her. And this is we talked about this at length during one of the episodes. He carried around guilt for like five years over the fact that why didn't I get home sooner? Why did I have to? You know, and I said, look, the, you know, and I, we talked about this on the air. I said, look, you know, if you that's your woman, that's your wife. If you would have known that she was having a stroke or was going to have a stroke, you never would have left the house. But if she'd have called you. And said, hi, honey, I'm having a stroke. You know, if you just said, oh, OK, great. Well, listen, honey, you know, I'm sitting here with Jay Leno. We're having a beer. So stop. Stop having that stroke and I'll be there when I get there. You know what I mean? I mean, that did not happen. You know, so I, I say this to say for all of you caregivers that are listening, if you're carrying around one ounce of guilt, I got to tell you, first of all, stop, because these are your loved ones. If you'd have known at any time that this was a possibility, you wouldn't have gone to the grocery store. You wouldn't have gone to work. You wouldn't have hung out with your buddies. Whatever it is that you did, you would not have done that. This is your person. This is your loved one. You would have been on there and done your thing, you know. And so, you know, and then the other thing, and I'm not talking out of school because you can listen to the episode where we talked about this with Lee and Cassie. Lee then also carried around the guilt that he, when he got home, he packed her up, threw her in the car and drove her not to the local hospital or the local urgent care or anything. He drove her to her hospital where uh, she is known and, and has had some other treatments and stuff like that. So he drove her to her doctor, which was to like uh, USC, I think it was UCLA, one of the big hospitals. I mean, he took her to her doctor. 
And he carried around the fact that, oh, man, why didn't I take her to a closer hospital? Why didn't I? You know, and I was like, Lee, you know, all these coulda, shoulda, wouldas, like you said, Karen, you know, if coulda, shoulda, then you woulda. But my point is, is that, you know, I was telling him, look, you took her to who you thought was the best to take her to. So, okay, so you drove an extra 15 minutes, but you trusted where you were taking her. You were taking her to a known thing. So you were making a decision based upon as much fact as you had. You didn't have any fact about the regional hospital or the urgent care down the street. You didn't know what you're going to find there, but you took her to her doctor. So that was a great, that was a very valid and great idea. While we were having this conversation, you guys can listen to the show, go back a few episodes. Cassie chimed in and on the air said, well, honey, but think about this. If you hadn't done that, I could have had the second stroke at home. And we all kind of looked at her like, you're like, wait, what? She had a second stroke, but she had the second stroke in the hospital. So I said, Lee, how about you cut yourself some slack? If you hadn't gotten home at all or if you'd have dragged your feet and had an extra beer with Jay Leno or whatever, she would have had the second stroke at home and we might have a whole totally different conversation here. So I go on this little bit of a rant in the middle of this conversation, everybody, to all my caregivers out there, because I know you guys, you know, these are your people. If you could have prevented this, you would have. You, if you could have taken the bullet for them, you, many of you would have. I understand that. But if you're carrying around the guilt that, oh, why didn't I get home sooner? Maybe this and that. Stop. Just let it go. Okay. It is what it is. Number one. Number two, if you'd have known that it was coming, you would have made much different decisions, I'm sure. And so that's my rant on that. So anyway, um, Karen, thank you for allowing me to go on my little rant. (laughs) Um, Everybody listening, this is Karen. And Karen is also one of our uh, stroke support group uh, caregivers who's part of our group on Wednesdays. And she just has a ton of experience on a lot of different levels in terms of um, not just being a caregiver for her husband, but she was also a caregiver for, I think it was your father or your mother. That's right. Um, Yeah. yeah. So um, kind of tell us how you kind of became a stroke caregiver. uh, And then, um, you know, we can kind of go from there. Okay. Well, um, unfortunately, as we all feel, <laughs> um, the job of that stroke caregiver, uh, was, it's almost two years now for me. Um, and unfortunately, my husband was alone for his stroke. I was not home. Uh, it was an ischemic stroke, and it, he wasn't found soon enough to be given any TPA or anything. They also couldn't retrieve the clot, so he still has that. Mm. Um, it affected his right side, so his left brain. Uh, he has aphasia from it. Um, initially, they told me, expect him to come home in a wheelchair. And I was fortunate enough to have the man walk out of rehab in a month. So he's a strong guy and relatively determined. Um, I think the hard, one of the hardest things was later down the road, he developed seizures. Um, and nobody prepared me for that. Nobody told me that was a possibility. So that was a big surprise. And... Um, a lot of regression and that's taken us over a year to try to find the right medicine, the right doctors, the right treatments. Um, but at this point, I think we have a good group together and they have a plan and we're executing it and, um, we're hopeful, but yeah, the day in day out of the responsibility for someone who is cognitively impaired, um, is very difficult. Very difficult. And I was fortunate enough to find all you people. It was a little later in the game, Hmm. but it's nice to have a group to share and talk with and just shoot ideas off of. 
So thank you, Christopher, for putting this together for us. Oh, no, no, no. You know, and, um, you know, I'm going to keep going around the horn, but one of the things that we're going to talk about after the break is um, something that I've really um, learned from you is that it's okay to be an advocate for your loved one. Um, You know, you've talked about how um, during your husband's treatment, following his stroke, there's been times where you've kind of had to raise your hand and say, uh, you know what, I think I'm gonna find a different doctor. You know, you're, you've, you were not afraid to ask questions. You were not afraid to kind of question certain things. And, um, and then coupled with the fact that, as you mentioned, he has these seizures, um, you know, you've kind of had to, you know, doctor shop. And I mean that in a good way, not, you know, in terms of drugs that people, you know, how they doctor shop for that. But you've had to kind of doctor shop for the right doctor who could address his seizures. And you've kind of learned along the way that a doctor is not a doctor is not a doctor. So your stroke doctor may or may not be the best person to address his seizures, you know? That's 100% correct. 100% correct. The initial um, doctor we were seeing was, now that I know it, I didn't know it then, Mm -hmm. But now that I know it wasn't really addressing his needs correctly, and it led to more trauma for for him. Mm-hmm. It led to to worse seizures, and and so we ended up at a teaching hospital. I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but um, I've since learned that not only is a neurologist a neurologist, but then there's specialties within neurology, and that's why I said there's a team now. There's not just one neurologist treating him. There's different ones for all the different ailments and difficulties he has mm-hmm. and it's it's helped exceedingly it really has to to be this fine-tuned kind of treatment mm-hmm. it really you, has helped you know i want to do a whole segment on this which is why i kind of want to keep going around the room but I, I have to stop and pause one more time and ask you were you initially afraid to kind of question a medical authority when you kind of saw that maybe Something no, didn't so that's look not right. Me. <laughs> okay, that's, that's not me. However, <laughs> however, the medical community, I didn't feel support from, which was interesting. Hmm. Um, I went to our general doctor and said, "Is there anybody else? This is this is not this relationship is not working out for us. What do I do?" Hmm. And it was, I was told, "No, there isn't anyone else." And then I went to the internet and did research and found a, a place. But then I had to wait months to get into that. Hmm. And in the interim, he's being treated by somebody that really wasn't capable to help him. Mm. And there were more complications, and, and it ended up in another ER visit. And that's kind of what bounced us out because it was emergent. It was an emergency. And that's how we found this next group of doctors. I was actively seeking but not finding anyone. Mm. And that was hard. You know, you guys, everybody listening, this is why this episode is so important, because I know there's a lot of you caregivers out there that, you know, have some questions, but you don't want to rock the boat. You know, you, you say, well, I'm not a doctor, so this guy's a doctor, so I guess, you know, what he says is right. You know, and that's not to say that doctors are giving you bad information, but as the caregiver, you know, as Karen and some of the others, as you'll hear, it's okay to say something's not okay. You know, it's okay to say, mm, you know what, I think we got to get another opinion or whatever. And again, and like I mentioned, you know, the thing that we learned from Karen from this group was that she had found that the doctor who was right for one particular situation with her husband having had a stroke was not exactly the right doctor for the other things that were happening as a result of his stroke. So the neurologist did not make such a great, you know, um, seizure doctor or the seizure doctor didn't make such a great stroke doctor. You know, they, one did not 
necessarily be the end all of end all. You know, it was not a, an all in one kind of doctor and that it did require a team. It did require her to do some calling around and some Googling and things like that to put together the right team to to help her husband through this. So um, it's really interesting. We're, we're going to touch upon that again. Uh, let me keep going around the, the horn here. Miss um, Trina, uh, say hi to everyone and uh, tell them a little bit about uh, your loved one. Hi. Um, I'm a caregiver for my husband who had a stroke a little uh, over eight years ago. And um, his was a hemorrhagic stroke also a, a brain bleed and it was very unexpected because he was very healthy at the time he was about 53 years old i think and he was a hiker um we didn't know of any risk factors he, uh, his cholesterol was great we uh he had never had any blood pressure problems so it was very much a surprise to us a shock when he had his stroke and um it was on the right side of his brain so his left side is affected he um lost the use of his left hand and has just um a minimal use of his arm and he walks with a, a brace called an afo um and also uses a cane but he's very handy around the house. He's uh, um, able to do a lot of woodworking and using equipment that he's adapted for himself that he can use with only his right hand and a foot pedal and clamps. And so um, over the eight years, he's figured out ways to, to do what he wants to do. Mm -hmm. Although he's had to uh, retire on disability. Mm -hmm. For those of you who have listened to a lot of our episodes, you've heard me talk about her husband many times. Um, you know, when I went to my very first stroke support group after I got out of the hospital, uh, I had never met anybody that had a hemorrhagic stroke. And um, from being in a hospital for a month and a half and going to Dr. Google and Dr. YouTube and not finding anything which then spurred me to create the Stroke Channel and Life After Stroke and all that other kind of stuff because I would have loved to have had the Stroke Channel and Life After Stroke when I had my stroke because I didn't know anything about stroke. I knew people had strokes. I knew the old lady down the street who went to church had a stroke. You know, you, you, you just think it happens to old people and happens to other people like it would never happen to you. And so, you know, I remember laying in the rehab hospital and you know, on my phone, Googling hemorrhagic, I'm like, mom, what do they call it? Hemo what? Hemorrhagic? How do you spell it? You know, and not finding anything. And the thing I, the things I did find about hemorrhagic stroke was that uh, it has the highest mortality rate. 50% of us die in the first couple days after having one and all this stuff. I was finding nothing good. And all I found was ischemic, ischemic stuff. That's all I ever found was just ischemic stuff. So anyway, so I went to my first stroke support group and there was a bunch of people. And whenever there's a new person, you go around the horn, introduce yourself. And so when it, you know, I introduced myself, you know, Christopher, I had a hemorrhagic stroke. And right as I said that, Trina's husband said, wow, I had hemorrhagic stroke too. And I looked at him and it was just like, you know, as you can tell, I'm upset about it because I was so glad to meet Trina's husband. Because all I heard was just bad things about hemorrhagic, hemorrhagic strokes. I figured maybe we all die. I don't know. 
And, you know, he had said that he had, at that point, he had had a stroke maybe, I don't know, three or four years prior or something like that. And I remember thinking, wow, okay, so I guess, okay, well, at least I know we can live at least three or four years. You know, it was like, you know, and I've told Trina this many times and certainly I've told her husband this countless times, you know, he was such a, an important inspiration for me at a time when I had no inspiration. I mean, I, I, you, you guys have heard me even say on the show before, I would have paid somebody to walk in my hospital room that had had a stroke a year before, two years before, just so I can see what you look like. You know, let me just see you walk. Let me see you talk. Tell me how it was and how it is now. So I have something to compare it to, you know? And, um, that's who Trina's husband became for me. So, um, you know, tell him I said hi, first of all. But um, I will. Yeah. Um, let, let's go around the rest of the room and we'll come back to everybody. Sorry, guys. I, you know how I get. <laughs> you know how I get. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Miss Louise, we got Miss Louise on here. And uh, I got to tell you, Miss Louise, she's kind of our comic relief. I love Louise. <laughs> Louise. Oh, yeah, yeah. Louise, when, when I told Louise we were going to do this show, uh, last week or a couple weeks ago remember and she goes well i'll try to be on my best behavior <laughs> and we're like no louise you can just be louise don't worry so anyway louise introduce yourself to everybody and uh tell them uh, about who you care okay. for and all that well i am louise i'm the mom of a well not much uh, he's not about the same age as trina's husband he was 60 no 50 53 or 52 or 53 when he had the stroke it was about a year and a half ago and it didn't affect anything physical, except maybe his enunciation. It, I, I imagine he had it on the gold line, either going to or probably coming back from work. He was working in downtown L.A. On the, and he would, would take the gold line. And he got himself home. And he showed up and probably just went into his room and crashed. And, you know, we don't have a... We don't have vital conversations, you know, we just kind of mind our own business. So it took me a while to, uh, it took me a while to notice. And the only thing, you know, he walked, he, he could take showers, he could do his laundry, he could cook and eat, but he had zero affect. Totally. I mean, you know, you look at him like he was just uh, no affect. If you talk to him, he just stare. And uh, so, and I didn't know what it, you know, people said to him, well, what did they say at the hospital? And I'm going, well, I never thought of taking him to the hospital. The first place I took him was a mental health clinic uh, from the county just because he'd had that was my thought. And my brother used to work there, so that was just my thought. And they took one look at him and said, you got to see a doctor. And when he walked into the doctor's office, the staff and the doctor and everybody that knew him just automatically knew there was something really wrong. But they, he was but they the didn't quite know it was a stroke, though. They just knew something wasn't right about him. No, but they, they the doctor ordered the MRI right away. Mm -hmm. Uh because he had zero affect, and he was the kind of guy that would, uh, like a, he had a salesman personality, like an annoying salesman personality. Hi, you guys, backslap, you know, talk, <laughs> talk, talk, and never had any content, but anyway. And so 
that sent us to the MRI. The thing that um, I find the most frustrating, and I wish, okay, what you said, what I wish I knew, uh, I don't, I still don't understand the insurance system. And because of the COVID, we had to stop the speech therapy and anything that was helping him, we stopped about a year ago, not quite a year. And his inability to interface with people, um, things have escalated with attitude. And I called the neurologist back and they said, oh, well, your insurance's qualification has relapsed. You'll have to go over. And I remember I would spend, it was like a job. It was like a part-time job, getting on the phone, sitting for a half an hour or more, talking to this person who referred me to this person, and two hours later, and I'm not exaggerating, it could have been four, two hours later, somebody said, well, I have the number for you, and I take it down, and then I go, expletive, this is the number I called originally. <laughs> well, you know, you, you know, Louise brings up a really great statement in terms of, you know, dealing with insurance. I mean, it really could be a full-time job by the time you go through all the phone calls and the phone prompts and this department and that department. And that's certainly a, an episode of the show that I'd also like to do in the future is to have someone come on to kind of walk everybody through, you know, some of the pitfalls and avoid some of the little landmines as you try to circumnavigate around this insurance nonsense. Because as a stroke survivor, you know, I can tell you right now, a stroke survivor couldn't handle it. I mean, it would make our head explode with all the nonsense, which is why, again, all of you care Caregivers are so valuable in that respect. You and know? and the thing that made it really hard was the HIPAA regulations because mm, absolutely every time I'd get on the phone to talk to someone on his behalf, mm-hmm. on his behalf, I'd have to give him the phone. Yeah, and if he was in the mood, he'd he'd say yeah, but. Yeah, I think there was one phone his- call you mentioned where they were really trying to push him. And you're like, well, he had a stroke, you know, I, I, it was a couple of weeks ago you were telling us about it, how somebody oh, wanted, this, they wanted to hear him and they wanted this. And, you know, it's like, look, lady, if he could do all that, he wouldn't have had a stroke. Uh, and they don't understand. They don't understand he can't form thoughts. And I'm trying to think of a polite way that they will understand that won't offend him, but will be still tell the truth because they don't understand cognitive delay and aphasia. Well, you know, that's really what makes all of you caregivers so important because, you know, again, as a stroke survivor, we could not even deal with all of that nonsense, all the phone calls and this and that and the other and everything else that we need. And that's just another reason why you caregivers are so important. And in the midst of caring for us, just in helping us get dressed, get to our appointments and things like that. You then, as you know, as it was put, you know, do a full time job almost on the phone trying to get our benefits and things like that. Um, Jonathan, um, you are kind of the, the the male representative of the caregivers. Um, you know, so many times you think of caregivers being wives and females and things like that, and and uh, you're the male rep here. Uh, introduce yourself to everyone and kind of tell them about how you found yourself in this caregiving position. Hello, everybody. My name is uh, Jonathan, and my girlfriend's name is Jan, and she had a stroke in August of 2017. Uh, prior to the stroke, she told me that she used that she gets grand mal seizures, but she was on medication for that. But she at, but she said, if I ever get one, do not call an ambulance. And I said, why not? She said, because 
Uh, they'll just take her to the hospital and then, then we'll take her driver's license away. And I said, uh, I said, okay, okay, fine. But I said to myself, I'll just think about that when the time comes. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so then um, in August, uh, her mother was gone for that for the month of August. And so Jan goes over there and takes care of certain things for her mother. So she'll stay there two or three nights at a time. And I, and I will be at my place. And so uh, our place. And so we don't really see each other. So, on one, you know, on like a Sunday evening or a Monday, I don't remember exactly. I called up and said, hi, how you doing? She said, fine, blah, blah, blah. I said, good night. Love you. Love you. Good night. <laughs> Next morning, I, I, I call to see how she's doing. No answer. I don't think about it. So she's not. I mean, I left a message. Uh, by about one or two o'clock, I didn't hear from her. I called again. No answer. And now I'm starting to get a little worried. Uh, so I rush over there. It was about three or four in the afternoon. And she was just sitting on the couch, staring blankly at the wall. And I said, sweetie, are you okay? No answer. I go, did you have a seizure? Is that what this is? Is this, because I didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. You know, is this, is this a seizure? No answer. I'm going, oh my God. You know, and I said, okay. I just said, I don't, I don't I'm just taking you to the hospital. And at first she, she said, no. And I said, what do you mean, no? I go, I'm taking you. We took her to the hospital. And of course, it was too late for the procedure to be done. And um, you know, uh, you know, then then of course she went through. I called the three to three uh, therapies: occupational, uh, uh, speech therapy, and you know, uh, physical therapy for the until her insurance ran out. And uh, I didn't know what to do or where to go. And I had no idea there was even these support groups out there until a friend of mine. She was a She's a psychologist. She said, did you ever try calling, finding out about a support group? And I said, no. And then I looked online, and, and there was Christopher's group. And I'm telling you, this man is a godsend. Oh, no, no. I mean, if it wasn't for you, Christopher, I'm sorry. I'm giving you a little, some little, little accolades. Mm-mm. I don't know where Lynn and I would be because she appreciates you so much. We all appreciate you. You have just been stellar with everybody. And then Absolutely. now that I'm on this care caregivers thing with Anne, I'm just like, it's it's almost like I'm, I'm completing full circle. I'm getting the answers. I, I'm getting some of the answers I should get. I'm getting some of the, uh, uh, you know, the, we, we talk, we talk on this thing about guilt and things like that. And it's, it's, um, it's just wonderful to have that experience with everybody else. And, and what I've learned, quite frankly, is, is that just like they always, the adage is, there's no two snowflakes ever alike. Well, there's no two strokes ever alike, mm-hmm. either it's eczemic or hemorrhagic. Mm-hmm. Somehow mm-hmm. it affects differently. Um, I, you know, like Jan, um, she, you know, uh, she lost her, um, her her peripheral vision on her right side. You know, she has right side weakness, but she can walk. She's ambulatory. She was a, uh, a yoga instructor, certified yoga instructor before she had a stroke. So I think that's what also helped her a lot physically. I have seen my girlfriend improve. Uh, especially with the, with the aphasia, with the, her ability to find words, and the words are there. And of course, and with Christopher's help, I don't help her when she can't <laughs> when she's searching for the words to say. Christopher said, "Don't help her, Jonathan. She she knows the word is there. She let her go and find it." And so I'm doing it. It's hard because you always want to be there to help your your, your person, and that's the thing. A caretaker's dilemma is: Are we doing enough, or are we doing too much? Right. Or where 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 do, where is that line that we have to walk? 
Well, first of all, you, sir, and your lovely girlfriend, Jan, you know, I just love you guys to death. So thank you for the very kind words. But, you know, you guys have become family to me. And, and um, you know, I feel like I've become family to you. And so I appreciate all that. Um, you know, one of the things that you're talking about, Jonathan, uh, you know, for everybody listening, you know, Jonathan asked me about a year or so ago. You know, he says, you know, I, sometimes I see her struggling with a word that she's trying to remember. And, you know, I, I want to help her. But, you know, how, you know, should I? Should I not? When is it too much? You know, what do I do? Because I don't want to see her just sit there and suffer trying to find this word. And I said, well, you know, you kind of have to remember that it's it's kind of like a baby walking, learning to walk. You know, you could always carry the baby, but the baby's never going to learn how to walk because he never has the opportunity to walk because you're doing all of the carrying for them. And so... You know, my feeling is, you know, with all of you caregivers out there, if you find your loved one searching for that word or, you know, trying to struggle or do something, you know, I kind of do the the three, the three, and you've heard me talk about this, and we may even air the, the, the promo during this show, kind of a three tries rule. You know, let the person struggle for at least three times. And then if you need to, then kind of step in and give them a little hint or something. Because what's happening in the brain, and I've, I've talked about this in other episodes, is Wherever that part is in their brain that they're not able to do anymore, that is a vacant field. Just picture a house that used to be there. It's not there anymore. It's just an empty field. So whatever was the center for you know movement or memory or whatever, to that degree, that is empty and it's not coming back. But what does happen is other parts of the brain says, huh, the house burned down next door? No kidding. So where's that family living now? They got no place to live. Well, we got some spare rooms here. Why don't we bring them into our place and they can live here? That's kind of what happens in your brain. Other parts of your brain takes on the role that the original part can no longer do, but it just has to learn that. You know, it's like, okay, well, I've never been a, a fist before. I've never been a foot before, but I can be a foot. I'm, I'm really the elbow guy. I'm the elbow part of your brain, but I can help your foot move. Just kind of show me how it works. Um, and the reason I, it's kind of a weird analogy, but this will help you for all of you listening. When I was in the hospital, and you may have heard this, me say this in other episodes, um, the therapist uh, looked at my foot and said, okay, Christopher, move your foot. And I was like, oh, okay. And I just think I'm moving my foot like flipper. And he's looking at me and I'm looking at him like, okay, what? He's looking at me and he shakes his head no. And I go, what do you mean no? I go, he goes, yeah, you're, it's not moving. I go, yeah, really? And I look down, my foot's not moving an inch. But in my brain, it's just moving like crazy. And so I said, oh, okay, well, hang on. Let me find it. If I said, let me find it once, I said it a million times. And I remember looking up at the ceiling I remember picturing all the ceiling tiles in my in my hospital room because I was looking up into my brain, basically trying to find foot again because it wasn't where it always was in my brain. I was moving my foot, but that part of the movement for my foot was lost in the stroke. So now I have to find where foot moved to some other part of my brain said, "Okay, well, we'll be the foot. We'll help his foot move. But it's almost like taking your silverware drawer in your kitchen and rearranging the silverware and putting it in another drawer. You know the silverware is in your kitchen somewhere. It's just not in the same drawer it used to be. So now you have to go into all the drawers to find out where the silverware moved to. And so that's kind of my explanation to Jonathan from like a year ago, which is when those things happen, let them kind of search around the kitchen for that silverware. They'll find it. But you have to let them look for the silverware. Otherwise, they'll never be able to find the silverware on their own if you're constantly bringing the fork to them. You know, we were going to say something, Karen. 
So it's interesting that you say that because I can visibly see my husband go through that in his own way too. Mm -hmm. He can positively sense the dead part of his brain and you'll see him close his eyes and he'll make a motion like he's switching to the part that works, mm -hmm. searching for something. And then it takes him a while and sometimes he gets it and sometimes he doesn't. And he opens his eyes and goes, okay, it's this. And he, he, he'll tell you that's what he's doing. He goes, I can't use that side. I can't use that side. It's not working. Yeah, it's, really it's interesting you said that. It's such a crazy thing. You know, a stroke brain, you know, I, I'm very aware of how my brain was before the stroke and how it is after the stroke. I cannot... It's crazy. That's all I can tell you. And, and to try to describe it would sound even crazier. But as I give you my long-winded analogies, that's really kind of what's happening in our brains is we're, we're trying to find where it's at. We know we still have a foot. <laughs> we know it's still there because it's there. It's just that what used to make it move is no longer there. But because of neuroplasticity, which I'm sure a lot of you have heard that phrase, that's what basically that is, is that other parts of the brain will take on that role. They just have to learn how to do it because they've never been a foot before. Again, they've always been the elbow or whatever. Um, you know, we've gone around the horn. What I'd like to do, let's take a break and kind of decompress for a minute. And then when we come back, um, all of our guests here on the show today have such insight into so many areas that I know a lot of you listeners are dealing with. And it's interesting, you know, we have a chat window because we meet via Zoom and we're doing this via Zoom, but we have a chat window that is usually never filled like it is right now. Everybody's being so, so, uh, <laughs> so well behaved because we're taping this, but normally people would be jumping in like, oh my gosh, me too. And so just to tell you, uh, a lot of your chats, because all of you have, have kind of not wanted to interrupt, but you've all, as somebody has spoken, a lot of you have put into the chat a lot about guilt. Uh, when we were talking about guilt a few minutes ago, a lot of you were like, oh, me too, me too. So I think what we'll do is we'll take a break and we'll come back and um, let's talk about caregiver guilt um, and some of the guilt that some of you caregivers may be carrying around, not just the ones who are part of this uh, show, but also the ones that were listening. I'm sure you guys will get some insight from that. And I also want to talk about um, something that we talked about a few weeks ago during our group session, everybody, was when you talked about how the things that you wish you knew while your loved one was still in the hospital that would have helped the transition of them coming home. You know, it's like, you know, your, your loved one is in the hospital for, you know, two, three, four weeks, you know, sometimes even longer. Nobody ever prepared you for this. Nobody ever told you to look out for that. Um, and all of you had such really great comments and insight into that a couple of weeks ago, which uh, really kind of spurred the reason for uh, me wanting to do this show. So anyway, let's sit tight and uh, we'll be right back. Life After Stroke is a production of the Hang On to the Dream Foundation, the 501c3 nonprofit organization that helps kids and adults reach their goals in life. If these Life After Stroke programs are helpful to you, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to the Hang On to the Dream Foundation to assist the organization in its numerous outreach activities. For more information, just go to www.hangontothedream.org. And remember, no matter how hard things seem, hang on to the dream.
Hey, this is Christopher Ewing, and I'd like to invite you to be a part of two really cool stroke support groups. If you're a caregiver, join us online every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific time for the Life After Stroke Caregiver Stroke Support Group. Exclusively for caregivers, this is a time where you can connect with other caregivers from around the world and share stories and gain encouragement as you care for a loved one who has had a stroke. And if you're a stroke survivor, then join us on Thursdays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for the Life After Stroke Online Stroke Support Group, where you'll get the chance to meet other stroke survivors and gain insight, information, and inspiration while on your road to recovery. For more information on these two great support groups, just go to www.thestrokechannel.tv. That's thestrokechannel.tv, because there's still a beautiful life after stroke. Hey everybody, welcome back to Life After Stroke. I'm Christopher Ewing, broadcasting from our studios here in Hollywood. And with us, we have a whole panel of caregivers who are talking about being a caregiver for their uh, loved ones who have had a stroke. And um, Karen, in the previous segment, you talked about this team that you put together. Um, you know, you were trying to get uh, help for your husband and realized that you needed more hands on deck. And, um, you know, started to kind of scout around. And as I kind of put it, you doctor shop to find the right players to put on his team to help him get the kind of recovery that he needs. Um, and talk a little bit about that. Were you intimidated to try to kind of step out? I know you said that's not really your personality to be afraid to speak up and say something. But, um, you know, how intimidating was that to try to make those kind of steps and feel like you needed more of the team? So um, because my switch to a doctor happened because of crisis, um, it was something that I wanted to have happen, but unfortunately we had to do it under duress. That was hard. However, once we made it to the next hospital, because literally in the ER, they kicked us out to a different hospital. They wouldn't treat him any longer, which was a tough moment. Hmm. Um, and I met the doctors at this next hospital and were happy to find how how much information they had for me, how much more information they had for me at that moment than I have ever had since the beginning of the script, which was interesting. And that kind of had this epiphany for me that said, I knew I wasn't getting treatment, but I didn't know what to do about it. Now, that doctor was the one who helped me realize that she was a specialist in epileptic neurology but that my husband had so many other ailments that we needed other specialists and she helped guide me to these other people. She helped me to, to develop that team and really made it ever present that, that no one person can do everything for your survivor. Now, when your husband first had his stroke, did you know that you were going to have to play such a hands-on role in this whole process? Nobody does. Nobody does. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a big shock. I'm I'm sure everybody on this panel right now understands that even for me, as far out as two years, I'm still learning how much I have to, how much I have to change to help my stroke survivor survive that stroke. And as you, you know, we mentioned earlier in this show, you actually come with some experience because you were a caregiver for your father. Yeah. You know, did that caregiving for him kind of help segue and prepare the road ahead that you found you had to do for your husband or not so much? Yeah. Yes, I, I guess so. But, um, you know, my dad had dementia and cancer and was much older. So 
it was a bit of a different ball game. And also it was my father, not my husband. When exactly. it's your spouse and it's, it's your relationship partner, whatever they are, mm-hmm. there's a, there's just a, there's a different sense of loss. Mm. I mean, I definitely had a sense of loss when my dad said I was his brother. I was his son. I was, you know, he didn't know who I was many mm. days. That was hard. Mm-hmm. But when it's your spouse, that's like that. Sure. You know, that's, that's your, that's just, it's just different. Yeah. It's well, different. you would expect it from your father because he's older and that's what happens to older people. Sometimes, you know, stuff like that happens, but yeah, you certainly wouldn't expect that. You wouldn't expect that you're going to have to deal with that with, your husband, your significant other, who's your own age. And, you know, I can only imagine. Um, but it did, gi- it did give you, give me information as far as like bringing other caregivers in to help me, those kinds of things. I was already set up. I already mm-hmm. had connections because I had done that for my dad. Mm-hmm. So to some extent, yes, you're right. It, 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 it starts your brain thinking a certain way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What do you think would have helped you be more prepared? Would it have been at the hospital level, you know, before your husband got out of the hospital, if maybe the, the hospital or the rehab center had a, a, a little orientation, a little, okay, before you go home, here's some do's and don'ts, or uh, what do you think would have prepared you better? I think if someone had told me a possible eventualities to look for Mm. and be prepared for and and just realize it would have helped because for instance nobody had even told me the seizures were possible Mm -hmm. that's that slowed down the whole process maybe if i had known that that was a possibility and i would have recognized it sooner maybe maybe treatment could have started sooner Mm -hmm. um but yeah you're right um they send you they send you home (laughs) with a packet Mm -hmm. they do send people to help you you know, kind of like transition. But, um, you know, it's, each of us has our own individual path mm-hmm. because of what uh, Jonathan was saying. No two strokes are the same. Mm-hmm. And you don't know what you don't know, you know, and, and, you know, as we've learned and as we've learned in all the support groups that we might participate in and things like that, strokes are very different, but some of the experiences and the after effects can be fairly common. Like, seizures tend to be very common um again you know had you known that seizures were even possibly even going to be on the radar you could have been a little bit more prepared you know like okay you know jonathan like you know in his case he's like okay is this the seizure honey Uh, you know and in that case the seizures came before the stroke you know whereas you know um in some cases uh stroke will come first and the seizures come later it you know, you just don't know what to look forward to. You look forward to. You don't know what to look for. You know, certainly you're looking looking forward to anything. Um, but a lot of these doctors and, and these hospitals do. And it would be helpful if they said, okay, now that your loved one has had a stroke, here are some other things that may, you know, happen. Mood swings, uh, speech difficulties, you know, all the, these other wonderful little gifts and things that just kind of get dropped in our lap as we go along. You know, it'd be nice to know that some of that is... Uh, you know, a possibility. Um, again, many of you in our chat here had brought up the fact about guilt. Um, is that something that you found yourselves dealing with uh, immediately after the stroke? Or was it, you know, later in the recovery of the stroke? I think you just, I think you just, I mean, for me personally, um, I wish, I wish I would have made different decisions on the day. I don't think that guilt came for a little while till you get time to self-reflect. Hmm. Um, 
and when you maybe your stroke survivor is finally running through that day. I mean, it took a while for my husband to really reflect on what happened and be able to tell me what happened. Everything was a guess because he had aphasia, especially when my mm. husband woke up, all he could say were numbers, no words, just numbers. Mm. So I had to wait for him to develop and catch up. And then he could tell me what happened that day. And I think that's when the guilt really hit because now I had to live what he lived. And that was, that was emotionally difficult. How startling was that, Karen, to see that, okay, so my husband survived the stroke. I'm now going into his room and there he is. Okay. And he's awake. But then all he says is numbers. How, you know, how startling was that? Hey, I was just glad that, I mean, they got him walking the first day. They made him walk. Mm -hmm. They made him stand up. Yeah, they were moving all his limbs and everything. But I was just happy to see him Mm -hmm. working. Mm -hmm. And the rest of it, it it was tragic to try to communicate. It was tough because you could see the pain in him. He knew, he thought he was saying things to me, sure. he didn't know. Sure. And it was a big 20 questions guessing game. <laughs> so to some extent, we tried to use a sense of humor. And for how long did that guessing game go on for? Weeks, months type of thing? Um, months. Months. Yeah. Months. It's pretty good now. It's, mm-hmm. We're almost at two years. Mm-hmm. And he really has developed extremely well. He's still frustrated by it for sure. when he can't find the words and he... he he mixes up pronouns, things like that. It's really difficult. But boy, his recovery oh. is really good compared to what you've told me. Because, you know, he and I have spoken. He looks great. He sounds great. Right. Um, you know, he's worked hard and he's fortunate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Anne, I have to say to you on this topic, you, you know, Dr. Peter, he his memory was gone. I mean, he didn't know oh, yeah. he even had a wife for four weeks. <laughs> when well, he like, t- when he tells me that, it's like, I can't even imagine. Um, what was that like for you to see him after, you know, the surgery or whatever and realize that he didn't even know who you are? Well, you know, the whole time in reflection, as Karen says, you have time to reflect. I'm not sure why we were in the hospital for four weeks. You know, he was in for four weeks before he came home. They didn't do surgery till the third week. So mm. in hindsight, I always wonder, why was he still there? He was physically just fine. Um, mentally just not there at all. Didn't know who I was, didn't know where he was, couldn't recognize it was a hospital. I mean, he was just nowhere. And I think when he came home, it was, he more or less recognized where he was. I mean, he says, this feels familiar, which was good. Um, But he still didn't know who I was. And he kept looking for other people that were not here. Um, it was disturbing. And you, you ask, you know, what do you wish you knew when you left the hospital? I wish I had had a psychiatrist talk to me or somebody because I was not quite prepared for the emotional toll it was taking on me. Somebody mm. here mentioned, cry- oh, I think it was Tiffany crying all the time. I mean, I was fine. And then he'd walk out of the room and I would just completely fall apart because I just, I wasn't prepared for that emotional it's a gut wrencher to feel like you've lost your partner and he was there physically and just fine physically. But if you only have the shell of the person, this is not good. Now things turned around about two weeks into his homestay. Um, his eyes lit up and I could tell that he recognized who I was. 
And that was a really nice turning point <laughs> to understand that he knew I was his wife um, and that we'd been together a while. <laughs> All those things are good things. Mm. So it, it does get better. But I, I don't think anyone really had expressed to me that there was that hope there. When we left the hospital, there was more of the, this is going to be your, you know, you're going to go to all these therapies. This is what you will never have a schedule again, because therapies are never scheduled the same time twice, it seems. Um, And all those things are kind of the logistics of it. And you can grapple with that. Okay, so I can rearrange my schedule. But the emotional is really hard to to cope with. And I don't know what the answer is for that. Um, Because as we keep saying, every stroke is different. So, you know, Karen has somebody that comes home and it's all there. He just can't get it out. I had someone come home where it's not all there and he was speaking quite well. Um, So, Mm -hmm. you know, it was just, I don't even know. Mm. And it's a journey. Um, This group has been great because I think it lets us vent a little bit Mm -hmm. to each other. Mm -hmm. And that has been helpful. Trina, what do you think? You know, I so much agree with Anne um, about the need for the hospital staff to prepare us, uh, the caregiver and the stroke survivor emotionally for the life changes that are going to happen. And fortunately, we did have one doctor that was straight with us, and he happened to be a palliative care doctor. And Gilbert was assigned to a palliative care doctor because of the severity of his stroke. And I think, I I don't think they thought he was going to have as positive outcomes as he's had, because since he can now walk on his two feet with a brace and a cane, I don't think they necessarily thought that was going to happen because he was really, we were there at the hospital for six weeks. They wanted him to stay another week at least after that, so it was very severe. And um, this palliative care doctor um, said, your life is gonna change and you're gonna suffer quite a bit after this and you need to be prepared for that. And he uh, said, do you have any um, uh, religion that, any spiritual uh, beliefs and I said, "Well, we're Catholic," and he said, "Oh, I'm Catholic." And he he said, um, "I'd recommend this book for you to read," and it was by C.S. Lewis and on suffering. And I was so touched by that that he um, took that step, you know, that personal um, step out in faith that. So I think that was so important that the doctor took the risk of just addressing the spiritual side of life directly with us. And uh, it just um, hit home to me. And that's what I needed to hear in that moment. Um, That yes, there will be loss in our lives. There, there will be hard times, but that um, there, there's deeper meaning in life and we can still go on just as other people have gone on through suffering. And he shared with me, the doctor did that his, um, I think it was his father had had a stroke recently. So 
speaking from personal experience, he could say that his faith and um, just uh, that spirit of perseverance uh, and knowing that life will go on and it'll be different, but, but we will get through this. That really helped me mm. uh, to know he, he had gone through it personally and uh, was empathetic mm-hmm. towards our situation. Um, hmm. So I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that meeting with that doctor. It was one of the most important moments. Hmm. Well, as we say here on the show, there's still a beautiful life after stroke. So, um, yeah, absolutely. You know, um, let's take another break. And when we come back, I want to ask you guys, you know, just for some final thoughts and suggestions um, that you'd give to some of our uh, caregiver listeners. Um, You know, many of you, you know, who are here on the panel have kind of been through the trenches. And, you know, what kind of of insight can you shed on uh, the whole caregiver situation to some of our fellow caregivers? So everybody sit tight. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christopher Ewing, and I'd like to invite you to be a part of two really cool stroke support groups. If you're a caregiver, join us online every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific time for the Life After Stroke Caregiver Stroke Support Group. Exclusively for caregivers, this is a time where you can connect with other caregivers from around the world and share stories and gain encouragement as you care for a loved one who has had a stroke. And if you're a stroke survivor, then join us on Thursdays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for the Life After Stroke Online Stroke Support Group, where you'll get the chance to meet other stroke survivors and gain insight, information, and inspiration while on your road to recovery. For more information on these two great support groups, just go to www.thestrokechannel.tv. That's thestrokechannel.tv, because there's still a beautiful life after stroke. Hey, this is Christopher Ewing with a Life After Stroke health tip. So if you're a stroke survivor with any kind of paralysis, then you know how frustrating it can be to try to do some normal everyday tasks. Things that used to be so quick and easy now seem almost impossible to do using, let's say, our hand or our arm on our affected side. Now, I say almost impossible because in many cases, our affected arm and hand are still able to do things. We just have to give them the opportunity to do it. And we have to resist the urge to baby them, as an OT told me once, or consider them no longer able to do things all because of the stroke. Now, when I was in the hospital, I remember one of the doctors telling me, You didn't break a bone, your arm is still there, and is just as intact as it was before your stroke. You just have to help wake those muscles back up and re-educate your brain on how to make it work and constantly remind your arm that it is still a part of your body and that it still has a job to do. Now that whole way of thinking really hit me one day a couple of months ago. I was at home about to go from one room to another, and as I was leaving the room, the thought crossed my mind to reach, using my left arm, my affected side, to turn the light off. And then I immediately said to myself, oh wait, I can't use that arm because it doesn't work, so I have to use my right arm to do this. And so I reached with my right arm and turned the light off. But then I immediately thought, wait a minute, how do I know if I could do that with my left arm or not? I didn't even try. So I turned the light back on using my right arm and hand and then reached up with my left arm and hand and taking all of 10 extra seconds at the most to do it, I turned the light off. And then I started to think, I wonder how many times could my left arm and left hand have actually done what I wanted it to do if I had just tried. So that's when I decided to implement a new rule, kind of a game if you will, that I want you to try to do also. I call it three tries. 
Basically, the rule is that you try to do something using your affected arm or hand, and you give it three tries. And if you are still unable to do whatever it is after three tries, then you can use your non-affected arm and hand, but only after you've tried at least three times, no matter how long it takes. Now, of course, if you're in a hurry, then you got to do what you got to do. But seriously, whenever time allows, really make a concerted effort to use your affected arm and hand instead of just automatically using your non-affected side just because it's easier or faster. I especially implement this rule if what I want to reach for is on the affected side of my body. Basically, whatever is on my left side is my left arm and hand's responsibility, and whatever is on my right side is my right arm and hand's responsibility. I make every effort to not reach across my body to do something using my right hand if that something is on my left side. Now, if you try this little game, trust me, you will be surprised at just how much your hand and your arm can actually do if you just give it a chance to show you. Now, if you have a really cool health tip that you'd like to share with others, tell us about it. Just go to our website, www.thestrokechannel.tv. That's thestrokechannel.tv. I'm Christopher Ewing, and this has been a Life After Stroke Health Tip. Life After Stroke is a production of the Hang On to the Dream Foundation, the 501c3 nonprofit organization that helps kids and adults reach their goals in life. If these Life After Stroke programs are helpful to you, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to the Hang On to the Dream Foundation to assist the organization in its numerous outreach activities. For more information, just go to www.hangontothedream.org. And remember, no matter how hard things seem, hang on to the dream. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Life After Stroke. I'm Christopher Ewing. And, um, you know, uh, this is really, I mean, this show could go on for hours more. I mean, there's just so much to cover. And uh, again, for everybody listening, if you're a caregiver, I certainly want to invite you to be a part of the uh, caregiver stroke support group that happens every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific time. Just go to thestrokechannel.tv and you can get signed up and um, we'd love to have you guys be a part of it. For those of you that are stroke survivors, uh, our stroke survivor support group happens on Thursdays at 11 a.m. Pacific. So uh, same thing, just go to thestrokechannel.tv and uh, get signed up uh, for that group. Um, You know, before we close, I just kind of want to go around the horn and, you know, if everybody could just kind of give a little just some thoughts and some insight and some advice to all of our fellow caregiver listeners who are listening to the show. Um, just kind of give them a little thoughts and feelings and hints from Heloise, as I say. Um, and we'll kind of start with you. <laughs> okay. Um, it's There really is so much, and I can't emphasize enough how important this caregiver group has been for me personally, and I think it has benefited everyone that has been participating regularly. Um, there is hope. Every, you know, things do go on. Karen mentioned finding joy. Joy is there, and people always say, look out for yourself. And as a caregiver, that's really, really, really hard to do. We don't look out for ourselves. We look out for our partner that mm. we're caring for. Um, and that that's a journey. That's something uh, one of our groups had mentioned. It's a role we have to redefine for ourselves. What is what is our life like as well? And it's, a, it's making a life for both of you together and finding joy together. And as Karen had said, something about, you know, visually distracting with beautiful things in your life, point those things out. I'm more a tactile person. 
And one of the things when I'm falling apart, it's so important when I demand a hug because that, that cognitive piece, that emotional piece is a little bit missing in my partner. And so I'll just go up and say, I need a hug. And he'll give me a hug. And that tactile piece is really important. It's a, it's, it's a nice thing to have. And even though some of the meaning may be gone, it's still there for me. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, just I don't even know what to say to people. I don't know what I would tell people if I met them on day one of after a stroke. Mm-hmm. It's just that. We're all going through it in different ways. We're all stronger than we think we are. And the groups like this really, really help to mm-hmm. let you vent and share. Yeah, because, you know, I can only imagine the, the pressure. And I remember a couple of weeks ago, Trina had mentioned how, you know, there was a, a, a level of pressure in that if something happened to her, the whole house would fall apart, you know? Um, do you remember saying that, Trina? Remember how you put that? Oh, yeah. Yes. Um, so... Whenever I think about um, like COVID, catching COVID, God forbid, or, or getting cancer or another fatal disease, I I don't think about myself dying. I that that would be okay, but, but it's the idea that everyone else when they who would take care of everyone mm. else in the family, and so caregivers, we I think we really tend to um, forget ourselves or uh, disappear you know, just disappear out of existence that you're only um, worth anything as uh, for your labor, like taking care of everyone else. But how much, how much pressure does that put on you though? You know, to know that everything is just on your shoulders. Like if you have a, if you catch a cold, you know, and you're in bed for 24 hours, Lord knows the whole house could be upside down because your stroke survivor husband, the kids and the whole, how much pressure do do you carry around with that? Uh, it's a constant pressure. It's a constant pressure uh, because that's that's my job. You know, that's what, holding everything together and advocating for everybody is my job. And um, and I think it's I go overboard on that, so I have to really watch myself and be careful to realize that I'm a person too. With yes. Uh, with value, with dignity, and uh, who God created yes. for, um, because He loves me too. I'm yes. not just on Earth only to yeah, ensure to the survival of everybody <laughs> yes. else. You know, so uh, that's it's so important for me. My me personally is um, I have to maintain this conversation with God daily throughout mm. the and remember. Oh yes, I. I'm a child of God too. Mm-hmm. I'm. Um, I do have a life's purpose that is related to caregiving, but that's not all I I'm good for. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to cultivate also my own personal um, understanding of myself and relationships with people and with God. So, yeah, <laughs> I have to make sure I don't disappear in the whole scheme. Yes. Of well, and that's the thing. I mean, you're people too, obviously, but you know, it's interesting how you're putting it and how Anne just put it. What happens when you guys need to be watered? You know, it's like pre-stroke, you know, your husband might've come over and give me a little smack on the tush or a big hug or random kiss out of nowhere or something like that. And then post-stroke, you know, they might be sitting in the chair, you know, half drooling on themselves watching television for eight hours. You know, how, how do you ensure that you still get 
the watering that you need, the validation that you need, and um, and not sacrifice that. I, I think it's so important to be in a support group, a support community that reminds you of your own value mm. and also to, for me, I, um, I uh, read or, you know, I nurture other parts of myself to, um, uh, with me, I'm in really involved with our church. So in my spiritual life, that that's a, a reassurance to help me gain balance mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. And how do you kind of stay rooted in? Well, <laughs> and I'm not religious, and so it's a it's an interesting because I know religion really helps a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But I um, I try to reach out to others to do something for somebody else because I am a caregiver at heart, and so you know I've getting back into driving for Meals on Wheels, and mm-hmm. you know those kind of things are important to know that there you can still be a value. You can still be a caregiver. <laughs> you can still take your partner with you as you do other things. And so we're coming up on our two-year mark, and I'm seeing us getting a little more back into what we used to do together and enjoy together. Um, and that that's important. And then, you know, <laughs> Trina reads, I sew. You know, you, you try to make time for something that gives you some personal joy and sometimes that's, you know, 10 minutes a day, but oh, well, that's mm-hmm. 10 minutes that you grabbed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Jonathan, what do you think? Um, uh, well, I was gonna, you know, in, in real estate, they say that to sell a house or to buy a house, it's location, location, location. With a stroke victim, it's patience, patience, patience. And mm-hmm. that's the thing I always have to tell myself. I have to be patient with Jan. I have to be patient because... Uh, you know, she gets frustrated that I get frustrated if she can't say something or else she's trying to explain something to me and we play this 20 questions game. And I'm sure you know what I'm talking about where you try to figure out what they're saying. And then, and then, you know, 90% of the time I can figure out what Jan wants to say. There's that 10% that I have no idea. Then she looks at me and she goes, oh, forget it. And she walks away. She gets upset. And then I get upset. Uh, yeah, so it's just, you have to just keep focused on, like you said, on the good things, you know, things that give you joy, things that, I mean, Jan, Jan and I, we don't have the same kind of conversations we used to have, but unlike um, uh, Karen, we we laugh a lot. We just laugh a lot, and that's great. And that's what if, if everybody can do that with their with their with their spouse or significant other. You got the battle half won. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess I have to say, be patient. Don't beat yourself up about being frustrated, um, overwhelmed, and seek as much help as you can get from the medical community. It's hard. They have a lot to do. I don't think they're doing it on purpose, but I think if you're not vocal, then you're going to miss out on some good help. Um, And then the only other thing I would really love to know is how to find joy for my stroke survivor. I can't seem to find that and give that to him. And so Hmm. that would be something I would like to know. You can't find joy. He can't find his joy or you can't make him joyful. Right. 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 You know, I think they struggle with what's happened to them. 
and and realizing what's happened to them and coping with those changes. It's, I mean, they're limited cognitively. At least mine is, and and uh, hopefully, I'm getting him that help that helps him come to terms with it. And hopefully, little by little, that joy that I used to know in my husband will surface. And I've seen it, little hints, and so I'm hopeful. And and I hope everybody else can find help to get them there. The one thing that I always have to deal with, and that it drives, doesn't drive me nuts, but it's just, it's always, I just don't know how to always deal with my with my girlfriend's frustration level. It's her frustration level that really skyrockets. And she gets it when she can't find a word or she just says, oh, my God, I don't know what I'm saying. I don't know what I'm doing. I can't take this anymore. She gets I can't take this anymore. I mean, she starts hitting herself in the head, you know, I, and, and what do you do? And as a what caregiver, you, you want to help alleviate that. Sure. I know. You know, I always say that, you know, a lot of you caregivers, you know, us stroke survivors will stub our toe and you guys will say, ouch, you know, because you'll feel our pain, you know, and I often say that, you know, the whole family deals with stroke. You know, we might be the ones that have the stroke, but you caregivers are the ones that have the stroke along with us because you love us, you care about us, and you go through the stroke almost just as we do, just obviously in a different kind of way, but we're all in that that kind of thing together um, just as a family and as a unit you know, as, as, um, as the, the, the caregiver and as the loved one, um, you feel our pain just as much. And I, I just can't even imagine. Jonathan, sometimes I give my husband a visual focal point when something like that happens, a photo of a joyful moment in his life. Um, or outside, if it's a, if there's a beautiful bird, anything visually for him to focus on, and stop that turmoil sometimes helps i won't say it always does but you might want to try that trina you're having a moment yeah i wanted to say to karen that um don't give up hope on that joy because i really believe it'll come back thank you trina um, he shared with me after uh you know we've been eight almost nine years into this and he said uh, probably after like seven years he recognized that he was in a depression during that first year and I didn't know that that's what that was I knew he was different but I didn't know he was depressed and um, it wasn't till after he came out of it probably after many years that he realized that um, he was feeling the loss of uh, his function, you know, physical function and of his um, job and being able to be with the guys every day at work. And so a lot, lot of loss in his life. And so I, a lot of the frustration and anger he was expressing that that was that loss, but the joy came back, you know, after he would gain some of the um, certain uh, functions that he, he figured out a different way to do it or activities that used to give him joy, like woodworking, carpentry, um, those give him joy now too. And, and I think um, finding the stroke support groups and 
being able to talk to people who understand him and we feels just uh, this camaraderie and uh, oneness of experience and soul, you know, that he gets joy out of those interactions, those relationships. Tiffany? Well, um, being a caregiver, I have learned a lot over the last year and a half. And, you know, um, you have to not take things personally uh, from the um, stroke patient. Um, at first, I was very, you know, take everything into heart and it's hurt so much and this and that. And of course, my husband now is 180 degree different than when he was the man that I know before. Uh, so it's just kind of understanding. And um, to me, I, I find it is working for me is not talking back. Um, uh, you know, when they upset, just let them be. Uh, kind of like be quiet and do whatever you need to do. Um, and, you know, I, I, so, so far that kind of worked for me. I know it's very hard um, and I'm still learning and sometimes it still hurt and I cry a lot still. But um, it's getting easier day by day if you can't ignore <clears throat> the somewhat, you know, quote unquote ridiculous thing that your um, loved one, uh, the stroke, you know, patient is uh, basically acting out. So that is a little, you know, um, lesson learned for me. And um, I would like to share that because I know that <clears throat> if you um, uh, first encounter with all this, this issue is could be terrifying um, hurtful, um, resentment, um, you know, all that bad stuff. But I think over the time I get a little bit stronger and kind of understand a little bit and let things go and again, not take things, um, um, you know, personal. Mm -hmm. I forgot to say that uh, I think it's really important to mention that Gilbert and I work specifically on our relationship and we we are in a support community called marriage encounter and we we uh set aside 10 minutes every night to write to each other and to set that side at that time aside for communication so we just have this commitment with each other that we will not go to sleep without having that communication time to mm. touch base and we did it all the for years we've done this so it was even through the difficult parts of the stroke recovery time when Gilbert's personality was different and his, he was still recovering um, or his emotional mm -hmm. side. We just, since it was a commitment and an appointment that we made with each other, that even if it wasn't so deep, uh, are we miss, miss the boat with each other? It was still that, uh, perseverance and we're still going to make try to connect so that has helped can, can gilbert read and write yes yes he can wow yeah that's great hmm. well everybody listening uh, you know 
this show has gone longer than I thought it was, and that's okay. I mean, it could go even longer, but um, you know, we'll we'll call it here. And you know, everybody listening, you know, really, for those of you who are caregivers, I really encourage you to be a part of Anne's uh, Caregiver Stroke Support Group um, that we have on Wednesdays. Again, it's 10 a.m. Pacific time. Uh, go to the strokechannel.tv and uh, you'll be able to get logged in. And, you know, the thing I guess I would kind of leave with everybody is that, you know, all of you caregivers, you guys basically chose us um, as boyfriends, girlfriends, husbands, wives, because that's how you met us. That's what you thought this was going to be. Uh, some of you did not choose us. Some of us, you you bore us, you know, <laughs> you're our moms, our dads and things like that. So you kind of had no choice. But at the end of the day, you know, you caregivers love us. And that just cannot be understated. I mean, you know, you signed up for something totally different than what you thought it was going to be. You know, you many of you got married and walked down the aisle and thought, okay, sickness is better. Yeah, I got this. No problem. You know, although you didn't realize how much sickness and health and better and all that it could be or not be. And you realized that while you were going to live your lives together, you didn't realize how much of that togetherness might become more of your life. You know, you would take on more of a 50-50. It would be more like 75-25 because now we as stroke survivors need you to carry some of our load also. And you guys have stepped up and, you know, in our, in our, our most helplessness, you guys have brought your most selflessness and that is just so important. And I guess I just want to say that on behalf of stroke survivors, all you caregivers, we love you guys. Even when we don't say it, even when we might not even show it, just know that we know it and that it's in us. Okay. And, um, you know, a life changing event happened in our lives and we're trying to make the best of it while still being the person that you want us to be and need us to be. And we just thank you in the midst of that, that you still are the person that some would say you need to be, or at least that we need you to be. And, um, just know that if you're not told enough, I'm telling you on behalf of your stroke survivors that we love you and we appreciate you. Okay. Um, anyway, I can never get through one of these doggone meetings with you guys without crying. And see, all of you have yourselves on mute. I'm watching all of you laugh at me right now because you know how I get. So anyway, everybody listening, they're laughing at me on mute because they know how emotional I get. But uh, but they're also they're also thanking me and blowing me kisses, too. So I guess I'm not making too much of a fool of myself. But uh, anyway, everybody listening. Oh, Trina, please. I thought I was only one. Trina's got more tears in her eyes than I got. Come on now. All right. All right. Whew. Okay. Everybody listening, I know it's been a long time since we've done a show, but you know, we've we do our support groups every week and we've just kind of been focusing on that. Just uh kind of stay, you know, safe and hunker down mid-COVID and just loving on each other and just um you know, just staying in touch with each other that way. So, uh, you know, we'll be doing more shows from time to time and stuff like that. But in the meantime, come hang out with us during some of our stroke support groups. Again, our caregiver one is on Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific. Our stroke survivor one is on Thursdays at 11 a.m. Pacific. Come get plugged in. Come hang out with us. And uh, we'd love to just uh, have you join our family and be a part of us. So everybody listening as i always say i love you guys i miss you guys and just remember that there is still a beautiful life after stroke 
This has been a recorded program of an actual stroke support group. The comments expressed are the opinions of the participants and not necessarily the opinions of the producers, sponsors, or the broadcasters of this show. This program is not to be used as a way to diagnose or treat any medical condition that you may have. Please consult your doctor or healthcare professional before making any changes to your current medical routine. Life After Stroke is a production of the Hang On to the Dream Foundation, the 501c3 nonprofit organization that helps kids and adults reach their goals in life. If these Life After Stroke programs are helpful to you, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to the Hang On to the Dream Foundation to assist the organization in its numerous outreach activities. For more information, just go to www.hangontothedream.org. And remember, no matter how hard things seem, hang on to the dream.